I don't know if we have the will, if people aren't even willing to wear masks, if we don't have the will collectively to address this big crisis that will still be here when the pandemic subsides. Solving the overdose crisis in America seems insurmountable, but key to any solution is telling the victims' stories and understanding the systematic forces that are making it difficult for them to escape addiction. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Jack Schuler is an associate professor of English at Denison University, where he chairs a concentration in narrative journalism. Jack is also the author of several books, including his latest, This is Ohio, The Overdose Crisis and the Front Lines of a New America, which is available from CounterPoint. Welcome to the podcast, Jack. Thanks for having me, Mike. As I like to do in these these things, I, I like to find out how people, you know, became writers, became journalists. You know, what got you interested in journalism? My first forays into journalism were in high school. I wrote a few stories for the local newspaper, The Times and Democrat in Orangeburg, South Carolina, which is a newspaper that still exists. And uh, I think it's a pretty, actually a really awesome outfit. So I wrote some stories for them. I went to college. I was in my school newspaper there. And after college, I made the huge mistake of going to get my MFA in poetry <laughs> at Brooklyn College. And I actually, you know, I kind of was, at the time I was very interested in writing poetry. And I studied with Ron Paget, who's an amazing poet. And actually, taught me a lot about writing clearly, writing tightly. And after that, I started working for a nonprofit and I was writing grants and doing communication work for them. While I was there, I went back to grad school and I got a PhD in English. And I was studying at the time, I was writing about human rights in the 18th century. And I ended up at Denison as a professor where I was hired to teach early American literature and black studies. And I wrote my first book. It was about a slave rebellion that happened in South Carolina in 1739. And I was actually interested in the ways that the story of that rebellion still persisted in the community where it happened. And I went down there and I interviewed some people and I realized that I liked doing that more than going into the archives. And so I just started doing more of that. And as a, my second book was about my hometown and I, you know, I did some work in the archives, but I also did a lot of reporting and, you know, journalism. And then my third book, even more reporting and journalism. And after I wrote my third book, I just kind of put writing big books and doing big projects to the side. And I started finding stories in the community where I lived. And Stories that I felt like weren't necessarily being covered by the national media. And I live in Licking County, Ohio, which is east of Columbus. And uh, it's an interesting place. It's, you know, Columbus is a, you know, growing, growing metropolis. And Licking County is still considered a rural county. It's one of the largest in the state. So we've got a lot of everything here, and including small, you know, Rust Belt cities. So, yeah, I just... I made this shift from thinking of myself as purely an academic to thinking of myself as someone who was writing about, you know, in many ways, the same issues that I've been writing about as an academic, but writing about them for a broader audience. And writing about them less as a, like, I guess, an intellectual exercise and more about, you know, what's going on in the real world, I guess. I wanted to talk to people and I wanted to get their take on, you know, 
how race works in rural America, you know, how poverty, you know, the growing gap, inequality gap in this country, you know, how is it affecting them in, in real time? And I felt like I wasn't, I was doing the thing that I think happens in academia. And I think it's important. I think expertise is important. But I think sometimes if we just keep talking to ourselves, then we're not, you know, we're not engaging with the world around us. And so I, you know, <laughs> the turning point for me actually was when I, um, we only had one car. I bought a truck. I'd always wanted a little truck and I bought a little truck. And it was when I bought that little truck and just started driving around and having my own car, my own vehicle that wasn't just for my family. And I was able to have some freedom <laughs> and just going out and talking to people and going, you know, and sitting with folks in diners. I read a story for the Christian Science Monitor about a group of guys who hang out at a diner in Utica, Ohio. And, um, you know, it was unlike, you know, some stories about people in diners. I actually had to like work at it to get these men to like, let me come sit down with them. And it took a, it took a lot of work to get to the place where I actually could, you know, write about them. And I worked on, you know, gaining trust of folks in, in my community to, you know, let me talk to them. And I think I'm in a privileged position because I, you know, I am in academia and I teach regularly and I serve on committees and I do all that junk, but I can kind of create my own research agenda. And I think that is, you know, I have a lot of freedom so I can pitch stories to editors that I'm interested in and I can spend a lot of time on stories that you know, someone who's writing for a deadline necessarily can't. So I feel like I, I have a certain amount of privilege in that regard. And it makes me sad to a certain degree that, you know, great reporters don't necessarily have that that same freedom. Yeah, you're able to go out there and talk to people and, and find stories that need to be told that people don't pay attention to. Or don't have the budgets to be able to do that, right? I mean, that's one of the big issues too. I mean, I actually do think that in the Midwest, there's so many little, little liberal arts colleges all over the place, like Denison. I think that there are a lot of folks in those places who could, you know, do similar kinds of work. I'm sort of proselytizing as much as, off, as I can. You know, like, I think that as we shift towards, in many places, towards a nonprofit model, I think that universities and small liberal arts colleges need to step up a bit. And I think there's, there's ways that we can intervene and support journalism in our communities that we haven't done yet. Yeah. Before we sort of talk about the book and how, how that came about and how you got interested, I did, I did want to touch on the concentration that you share at Denison, which is, is narrative journalism. You know, how do you describe narrative journalism? What, what is it to people who may not understand it? I say, when I talk to students, I'm like, you know, it's long form storytelling for broad audiences that use the same skills that a fiction writer might use to tell a story, Right. It's factual, it's narrative storytelling. What's different about what we have here at Denison, it's not a major, it's a concentration. So we're really encouraging our students to major in something and to have some area of expertise. We have students that are in this concentration who are in data analytics, in Spanish, in psychology, political science. I think we have a theater student. Last year I had a student who was math, a math major, and she was really interested in data. So they come from all over the place. You get a lot of English majors and communication majors as well, but we're really, we have students from all over the campus. So 
what we were trying to do is say, look, there are students at Denison who are interested in journalism. There are students at Denison who are interested in you know, public relations, that are interested in writing for nonprofits, even students who are activists, but they want to be better storytellers. So we created this concentration out of the English major in part because we knew that students, you know, students need to have those creative writing skills in order to be able to do you know, narrative storytelling. More and more, we're getting students who are interested in audio storytelling, you know, in digital media across the board. So we're, we're working, we were able to get a grant from the Mellon Foundation to support this work. We have a, a digital media specialist who works with students to, you know, create stories on new platforms that allow for the integration of audio and photo and things that I'm just starting to do too, right? So it's become really popular. We, when we started it five years ago, we thought we might have like five, 10 students maybe. And we've got about 50 students in the concentration right now taking classes across the campus. And we have faculty around the campus who are, you know, I think also public intellectuals who write for broader audiences who are teaching in the program. Let's circle back then to the book that you wrote about the overdose crisis. You know, did you sort of discover this story or become interested in this story, you know, in what you were describing before, just sort of going around and meeting people and talking to them about what was going on? I had a listening post and it was a diner actually in downtown Newark. It was called the Sparta. And at the time it was a, it was a sort of nonprofit venture I don't know if it was nonprofit, but it was like a, the guy who started it wanted to hire folks who were not able to get work experience otherwise. So people who might've had felony convictions, people who had substance use disorder, things like that, you know, and you needed some support. And it was an interesting space. And so I would go there and just a lot of the local organizers and community activists would be there. And I just started talking to folks and through that, I became really interested in housing issues, homelessness issues, you know, like a lot of Americans right now living paycheck to paycheck, the lack of transportation, all these things. You know, I was studying poverty and I was looking at how poverty worked in sort of Rust Belt America. And I was working on a pitch about how people experienced election night who were living in in motels, you know, for periods of time. And as I was doing that reporting, I went on a trip with someone to a, to where a homeless camp was and people were living in boxcars. And I just remember thinking like, this is so, <laughs> actually at the time I was reading with my daughter, I was reading the American Girl books, um, which are actually pretty amazing. And one of them is about a young woman who actually wants to be a journalist. And it's during the Great Depression, you know, she visits a homeless camp and it's a transformative experience for her. You know, she sees that like all is not well during the Great Depression. And it just seeing that and like reading that with my daughter in the evenings, I was just like, this is not, you know, what's going on here? And I wasn't hearing from either candidate running for office a conversation about, you know, the growing inequality and income gaps in this country and homelessness and the Rust Belt and so I was really working on a story about that. And as I talked to folks, you know, this idea of deaths of despair, of overdose, 
that was the thing that most people were talking. It wasn't, you know, all these pressures that were leading to homelessness, that were leading to living in camps and, you know, were combining in a really awful way at that time into overdose. And then we see this huge spike in the middle of 2016 to the middle of 2017 in overdoses in, in Ohio. A lot of it was caused by carfentanil. And at that time I was following people, you know, at that point I'd sort of found some folks that I wanted to write about and I was just kind of following them. And I, I read a few stories here and there about them and I just kept at it. And I didn't really know where it was going. And then I wrote a story for the New Republic and a story for Pacific Standard, both very different stories, but about also both about Licking County and about overdose and about dealing with the crisis. The story that I wrote for the Pacific Standard, I was very, very conscious of the fact that a lot of the national narrative around the, the overdose crisis was that Ohio and West Virginia, these were places that were just on their knees and that people were dying and that the morgues were filling up and that refrigerator trucks were being used to store bodies. And all of that is true. But the part of the story that I wasn't seeing, I wasn't seeing, you know, all of these people who were fighting back and were trying to save lives. And so I wrote that story with the intention of writing a story about people who were fighting back. And so, you know, after I wrote that, I pitched the idea to, to my agent and, you know, got a bite from counterpoint almost immediately. And, and then I just, I just kept following them and things kept happening. And, the fight around having a syringe exchange in Licking County happened during the course of this. I was learning a lot too. That's the other part. I don't want to take on a big project if it's not something where I'm going to learn and where I can also maybe hopefully teach some readers as I'm going. I think that if I have a narrative personality, it's that I, I'm curious and I want to learn. And I think it's okay, you know, for a big project like this, I, I felt like it was okay. I don't, I don't know everything about harm reduction, but I'm going to learn and I'm going to take you, dear reader, with me on this journey. And I felt like, I felt like the project was worth, it was worth pursuing because I knew I would learn something, but also that I might also be a part of teaching other people about this thing that scared me to a certain degree. And I kind of admit that at one point in the, in the book, I go to Vancouver and I, and I visit overdose prevention sites and I see things that I hadn't seen before. And I think a lot of folks have these ideas about what harm reduction is based in part, you know, just from lack of experience. And so for me, it was difficult to encounter some of these things at first. And then when I encountered them, I realized that the world did not end and actually people's lives are being saved. And I would point out that we've in some ways come full circle Preliminary data in Ohio right now shows that more people died in the month of May from overdose in Ohio than have ever died from overdose in any single month. So things haven't gotten better. What is it that people don't understand about this crisis? I think a couple of things. First of all, I think that the narrative that, you know, Big Pharma did this thing and, and it was bad I think that's true. I think that Big Pharma preyed on places that lacked healthcare and, you know, were troubled already. But I think what most people don't understand, I think the average citizen <laughs> doesn't understand that that's not the story anymore. Like, we're so far past that. People are dying from 
in 2018, it was something like maybe 15,000 of the roughly 70,000 people who died in the United States of an overdose actually had some form of a prescription pain, pain med in their body. Mostly people were dying from synthetic opioids like fentanyl and carfentanil. In some ways, we're stuck on that narrative. Now, I mean, I think that it's great that they're going after the after Big Pharma. I think that's fine. I'm in full support of that. But continuing to to at least replay that narrative misses the point. And the point is this. People are dying because of these larger social determinants of health. That's why people are dying. And people are dying because of the drug war that persists. You know, Breonna Taylor is a victim of that drug war, you know. And there have been many cases where people have, you know, experienced a no-knock raid and, and someone has, in, in Ohio, had other examples of this, right? So the drug war persists. We're not thinking enough about the social determinants of health. We're not treating this, you know, one of the narratives is that we're treating this as a health crisis as opposed to a criminal justice crisis. But actually, I think we're still treating this as a criminal justice crisis. I think that people don't know enough about the harm reduction movement and how strong it is, and especially the grassroots harm reduction movement. And, you know, those people are not getting enough support, I think. I think that people still think that addiction is a moral failing. And I think that, you know, the problem is that people use drugs because drugs make them feel better. And the question, the next question should be, so why are people, why do people feel bad, right? We need to figure that out. And those are big, huge questions and they require a lot of money <laughs> they were to address, right? And I don't know, I don't know if we have the will, if people aren't even willing to wear masks, if we don't have the will collectively to address this big crisis that will still be here, you know, when the pandemic subsides. Yeah, I think the big pharma thing, I think people react well to a simple solution to a very complex problem. If we can take out this one thing, everything will be solved. Right. But you, know, you, you said things as you were telling your story. I mean, you talked about health care. You know, if many of these people were receiving the proper or had access to affordable health care, maybe some of these issues wouldn't have happened. You also talked about the war on drugs. And, you know, I know in your book, you talk a little bit about the defunding the police movement and how, you know, these things are all sort of tied together in the same bundle and affect each other. You know, you talked a little bit about the harm reduction movement. Could you sort of explain that? Because that's actually the first time I've heard that phrase. Well, harm reduction is a public health approach to addressing the harms that can come from using drugs especially IV drug use. It's also a social justice movement. It's the idea that, you know, there are lots of harms that come from, from drug use. And some of those harms are larger harms like racism and racism in the drug war, you know, that affect people who use drugs. And we can't help people who use drugs if we don't address these larger systemic issues, right? And so, you know, one of the greatest harms that affects people who use drugs is the drug war. And it's not always, you know, you know, I, I point to Breonna Taylor because that's on my mind today and probably on a lot of people's minds. And those are big sort of big moments where we say, oh, that's the drug war, right? But the drug war is also, it's little things that make people's lives more difficult. And I write about one example in the book, um, one of my central characters, Billy, He's dealing with a drug charge that happened 
several years earlier. The charge was abuse of harmful intoxicants. And it was a charge that he got because he, was, he overdosed while he was in treatment, right? While he was in treatment, he overdosed, took him to the hospital. And while he was in the hospital, sheriff's deputy comes in, starts questioning him and then says that he's being charged with abuse of harmful intoxicants, which, you know, is, it's kind of a crazy charge when you think about it, that someone's being charged in their own overdose. But besides that, like what it did was it put one more hurdle in front of this person, you know, towards getting, you know, as they were trying to get their life back together. They had to deal with this charge among other charges, right? Like criminalizing an act that occurred as part of the recovery. Yeah. And what was wild was that he, you know, he would go to court and this was in Waverly, which is down in Pike County, which probably people have heard of Pike County because of the the big, the story of the Rodin family. But he would go down there and he, he went down there maybe four or five times. And then he had to go back down there and he said, we go down there with me. And I said, sure, this will be interesting. And I go down there with him and we sit. I mean, this is the story. The story is that we go there, we have breakfast at Burger King. <laughs> then we go inside and we wait for four hours. And the judge says, I'm not going to meet you today. You have to come back. You know, and that was it. That's all that happened. But to me, that was like, that's it right there. That's the drug war, you know? So the thing for him is that Billy, you know, Billy didn't have kids that he was taken care of. And so imagine like what would have been, how would he have handled that if he had kids he had to take care of that day. But he did have employees. He was running a a painting company and he had like three employees and, you know, he had to deal with them during the day. And one of them was late. It was this whole, you know, drama or whatever, but like he missed out on a day's work, you know, just to deal with this, this stupid charge. And it slowed him down. Right. And it slowed down the process of him dealing with the bigger issues, you know, that, that led to his substance use, right? And I think that that happens in cities and towns around the country every day, all the time. Yeah. And I know that, you know, in, in recent months, many reporters have kind of woken up and they recognize as they start to cover the social justice protests, the topic of defunding the police and beginning to understand that, you know, there are different approaches to trying to solve these problems, that not everything is is a criminal offense, and, you know, at the same time, there, there's a pretty active movement of, of people who are trying to decriminalize, you know, marijuana, get people out of jails because of convictions because of that, sort of get people out of jails because because the jails are crowded and people are there because of the, the war on drugs. So the thing is, your book and journalism like it is really kind of valuable in this space because it allows people to understand that you know, if you really want to solve this problem, you can't just, you know, blame it on, on pharma or on one thing that you have to look at the whole system. And I think people are sort of waking up to that. So how long did it take you to write this book? Well, can I just, can I say something to follow up that? I would say like, you know, I've heard some criticism like around, you know, the phrase defunding police or whatever. Like there's another way to frame it too. And Alex Vitale, who I write about in the book, you know, one of the things that he says is like, we're asking police to do too many things. We're asking them to take on like, you know, we're asking them to carry naloxone. We're asking them to, you know, deal with people who have substance use disorder and mental health issues. And like, they're not trained to do that stuff. And I think we cut funding to so many things in our communities. And then we, and then the result is that, you know, people are struggling and they have crises and the first phone call is to the police. And I don't think that's fair to them, to be honest with you. Like I've, 
spend time with police and they'll say, you know, I'm not trained to do this thing that I'm being asked to do now. Or the same would go for firefighters. I mean, the first responders in our, in the county where I live, and I've spent time, you know, with the firefighters going to overdose on the overdose runs or any runs. And like in general, they're being asked to do too much, right? They're being asked to do things that are better off taken care of by peers, by social workers, by people who understand the problems that need to be addressed, like overdose and mental health crises. You know, I think there's a way to think of it like that, rather than just saying defund the police, which, you know, is an important rallying cry, but I think there's there's a larger analysis to it. I agree. And I think the, the problem is, and many people hear that, they misunderstand it, and they look at it as a public safety issue, but you know, to your point, somebody in a, in a mental health crisis, you know, maybe they're not the best thing for them is to put them in jail and, and put charges against them. These hurdles, as you sort of said before, that that are preventing them to seek the help that's actually gonna that's gonna help them get out of this. And, and you know, there are many police who say that, who say that this is not the the best way to handle these things. Well, if you look at the rise of stress among police officers, and also especially among you know EMT first responders and rising rates of suicide, that sort of thing. I mean, it's pretty obvious, you know, what's happening. You know, I, I have this list in my head, of like, how do we respond to what's happening right now? You know, it starts with, like, making sure that everybody and their mother has naloxone, right? And then it's like, you know, can we have a conversation about safe supply and drug checking and things like that? But then it also includes things like living wage, healthcare, housing, you know, all these bigger issues. Right now, we're, we really are in a, we need some quick band-aids and, you know, naloxone is one of them, but safe supply and drug checking are another. And we're not even having that conversation, I don't think, in the United States. Bring up the idea of having a safe injection or safe consumption site, you know, in the U.S., let alone a syringe exchange and people fly off the handle. But, you know, I think when people think about what happens to communities when one life is lost and how that the effects, the ripple effects of that lost life and actually look at it from that angle, then maybe we'll begin to, to think about some more progressive solutions. I think there's certainly a lot of pressure going on right now where there's this hope and this feeling that something needs to shift in order for, for us to sort of move forward. And hopefully some of this stuff can be taken out of sort of the political realm, the actually the problem will be actually addressed the way, the way it should be. I, you know, I asked before how long it, it took you to write the book. Tell me about the process. I know that you said you went out and you, you talked to people. What was your reporting like and, and how long did that take? I was going to a lot of meetings, first of all, you know, the different task force in the county. I was following people who were doing grassroots work, just spending time with them as they did their naloxone distributions and things like that. But the sort of like central practice to my reporting started in the winter of, I think it was 2018, when Trish Perry and another woman named Jen Kanegi started a homeless outreach every Saturday at a corner in Newark, kind of close to the county jail. And I just would go there and go there every Saturday and talk to people I was interested in, I mean, you know, we know that people are overdosing and dying 
from middle class and from working class and upper class, you know, lots of people are dying, but people who are most at risk are people who are underhoused or are homeless, people who are working class, people of color, people who are, you know, are not cisgendered. Those are the people who are most at risk. So this space that this woman, Trish Perry, created was a very welcoming kind of space. And she just let me hang out there and I would just hang out and talk to people. And I learned a lot about what was going on in the county from their perspective. A lot of times when I would go to meetings, the people who were there were officials, you know, and you can learn something from those folks, but you can learn as much or more from the people who are actually experiencing the problem. From the person who used naloxone the night before to revive a friend, you know, and I was interested in having that perspective centered in the book that I was writing. So I went down there, I went there every Saturday and hung out for several hours. And I just became sort of like, I don't know, my church. I just would, you know, it was my regular practice. So there was that and just also, you know, being in constant touch with folks who were doing grassroots organizing around the country, but also in the state. And it was time consuming. <laughs> it was time consuming. I, I dedicated the book to the people who are showing up and I felt like that's what I was learning from them is that you just show up. And I'm, I'm very honest in the book that I, you know, I began to definitely see these people as, you know, as people that I cared about and not just subjects in a book. You know, it's, it's difficult when you care about people who are, you know, who are struggling in their own ways. I definitely focus the book on the activists who are, are not struggling as much as others, just in part because it's hard to report on and with people who are who have their own you know things that they're dealing with and they don't need a reporter to keep bugging them. But at least one person that I wrote about, you know, has overdosed and passed away since the publication of the book, you know, that makes it real. It makes it really it makes it real in, in ways that I I didn't expect to happen. And I feel like I, um, I've talked to a lot of writers about this. I had a brief conversation at one point with Beth Macy and some other writers who reported on this issue, just about the, you know, the, I don't know if it's secondary trauma or what it is, but like, it's a, it's an intense experience. I definitely felt like I emotionally you know, and intellectually was more engaged in the story than a lot of things that I've written before because it was happening in real time. It wasn't history. It was, it was happening right around me. And, you know, I actually went to therapy for the first time as I was writing this book and it was very helpful. And I recommend journalists who are writing about difficult topics to reach out for help if they need it. And I definitely needed it. So how did I report it? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I put, uh, put a lot of myself into this book. It says a lot. You start by saying that you really just kind of are showing up, meeting these people and hearing their stories and then begin identifying them. And the fact that you're able to recognize that, you know, hey, I may be having a little problem processing some of this and knowing with how to handle it. That's lucky and it's, it's good that you did that. Is a real powerful book, and and I think people should read it for a lot of different reasons. I think the stories that you, story you tell, the stories you tell, there's a lot of weight to them. Jack, thanks for coming on the podcast. I've been talking to Jack Schuler, 
author of This is Ohio, The Overdose Crisis and the Frontlines of a New America. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.